Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, how you doing? Doing the best I can. How are you doing, Leslie? You know, hanging in. Um, no complaints, surviving, employed, everyone's healthy and safe. You know, what else is there right now? Here's wishing the same to all of our devoted listeners. Yes. Well, let's get right into headlines. What do you say? Absolutely. And there's actually a bunch of stuff this week. So I guess that's good. I don't want to say the world is getting back to normal, but the world is trying to figure out what normal looks like. So up first, uh, for people looking to celebrate, acknowledge, or basically pay tribute to Juneteenth this weekend, HBO has announced that the entire first season, well, the only season of Watchmen is going to be available for free on demand from Friday through Sunday. You can also listen to our podcast interview with Watchmen TV creator Damon Lindelof. That would be episode 44 from October. Sticking with headlines, the central stars of 30 Rock are the latest TV cast to reunite for a scripted special that will double as NBC's upfront presentation when it airs on July 16th. Okay. Yeah, it's basically like, hey, tune in. We know that you're gonna, you're curious, but also ad buyers can also tune in. And here's how great all of our products and platforms are. So, yeah, it's a little hey, weird. Yeah. It's a thing. It's a thing. Um, in streaming orders, Michael Keaton will star in Dopesick, an eight-episode Hulu limited series exploring the opioid crisis from Empire co-creator Danny Strong. The streamer has also renewed Solar Opposites and Crossing Swords for additional seasons. Over at Amazon, they've handed out a series order to an autism comedic drama from Parenthood and Friday Night Lights creator Jason Kadams. And you can, of course, listen to our podcast interview with Jason Kadams and also our podcast interview with the creators of Solar Opposites. So... Lots of people like to be on this podcast. Over at HBO, Bette Midler will lead a star-studded cast in a remotely shot satire about coping with politics and coronavirus called Coastal Elites from Jay Roach. Elsewhere, HBO is teaming with Spike Lee for a filmed version of David Byrne's American Utopia Broadway show as a film now. Over at ABC, the network has cast its first Black Bachelor with Matt James set to top line the next season of the dating series. Seriously, there's a lot of news this week. In there is renewal, a lot of news, yeah. In renewal news, USA has picked up the anthology The Sinner for a fourth season, while Sherman's Showcase, one of the best shows on TV from last year, has been renewed for a second season and will air on both IFC and AMC. We will probably mention that again later in the Critics' Corner segment. Meanwhile, Deborah Messing is heading to Stars for her Will and Grace follow-up and will top line a 1980-set White House comedy that's in development at the premium cable network. Hair Love creator and Oscar winner Matthew A. Cherry has signed a first-look TV deal with Warner Brothers. That's his first overall deal, and congratulations to a, a good, good creator getting a first deal at, a, at the right time. This is definitely the right moment for, for voices like his to be amplified by studios like Warner Brothers. Indeed. And wrapping up this week's headlines, the bold and the beautiful sort of resumed production and then kind of shut back down this week in L.A. It was the first scripted show to, to get back to production. They had they were using actors, real life partners to serve as love scene doubles and had other safety induced changes before shutting down. And at least briefly, we're told, although it's not back up and running as of our recording here to do more covid testing. 
utterly freaking bizarre. You should definitely Truly check bizarre. out. You should definitely check out Rick Porter's interview with the producer of Bold and Beautiful talking about the love scene doubles thing, which is really so strange to me. And I, I don't know what to say about any of it. We I mean, we all knew we were living in strange times, but this might be one of the five or ten strangest things that anyone has been floating for weeks. <laughs> yeah. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five topics. Number one. Leading off this week, even though nobody knows exactly what the fall actually means, NBC and ABC have both revealed their schedules for the start of the 2020-2021 broadcast season, which will begin whenever it begins. So honestly, Leslie, break down the news from these two networks and what their fantasy scenarios are for the fall and winter. Well, there's two strategies that have emerged uh, from the big five broadcast networks. And one is to Corona proof your lineups. That's what Fox and the CW did, which we discussed on previous episodes here. And then the other three, NBC and ABC this week and CBS before them have kind of gone and done this fall schedule basically with an asterisk. Like basically they're, they're plotting business as usual. Grey's Anatomy will air on Thursdays at, at 9 p.m. and, you know, and so forth, like. But the big question is, is that no one knows when any of these shows will physically be able to return to production. Yes, in California, you, you, they, the mayor and the governor have both cleared the path to, for production to resume. That hasn't happened yet, it, unless you're sort of the bold and the beautiful. But meanwhile, the guilds are kind of going at it and trying to come up with best practices. And, and if you read um, Lacey Rose's brilliant drama show runners roundtable, it does not sound like anyone is quite ready to go back to production yet to go to set and to kind of figure out what life is like on this, you know, in this new era of filming with COVID safety guidelines. We know that production is going to take longer with all of these different, you know, staggered departments kind of coming in and going out. So yeah, there's a lot of questions. We know episodes will take longer to produce. Unscripted series may be able to film in a bubble, which is kind of what Carrie Burke said The Bachelorette is going to do when it's expected to debut on Tuesdays sometime in the fall. But basically in my interview with, with Carrie, just as, as in my interview with CBS's Kelly Call, they both are admitting that fall is not going to begin in in the traditional third week of September for premiere week. That's probably a long shot. That's best case scenario that these shows can get up and running and deliver episodes in a way that they can do originals week after week after week. What I think is more realistic is that the now these three networks are expecting them to return sometime in the fourth quarter, right? That could be late September, early October, late October, November, maybe even December, but when you look at what Fox and the CW said, they're like, look, we know that this is even and even both of those networks, it's worth noting, revealed their schedules in May before production was cleared to begin in California, where so much of the scripted stuff is shot. Obviously, the CW is more focused in, in Vancouver, but, you know, there, th that's another set of, of delays. But, but basically, those two networks have said, we know that even if they can get back up and running, we want to give them more time. We're targeting January. And in the interim, here's what we're going to do. We're going to use, you know, air this gently used programming like L.A.'s Finest and, and Devils is like Canadian or foreign show starring Patrick Dempsey for the CW. And we're going to hold over these these shows like like Filthy Rich and Next on Fox that we were hoping to air in the spring. And we're just going to go with what we have in hand and we're going to figure out a way to shoot Masked Singer. And CW is like, well, we'll figure out a way to shoot the remaining episodes of, Super, of the final season of Supernatural, which, as you know, is a high priority for that network to, to end that show after 15 seasons. ABC, NBC and CBS are basically saying 
this is our dream scenario. We're going to get back to it. We don't know when that is. And in the meantime, viewers have no idea what what's going to air when. So if Grey's Anatomy can't return the third week of September and I pick on Grey's because it's the most stable, it's returning for what? It's like 17 season, I think I can't I've, I even I've lost track of that. But we don't know what's going to air if these shows can't return to production. And ABC also, we should just note, you know, as we uh, sit down to record this, just made a change too, where they originally left Blackish off of their fall schedule in favor of this rookie show called Call Your Mother, and they just flipped those and decided to put Blackish on in the fall because guess what? It's a timely show that will likely cover timely topics and hold the rookie show for later in the fall. And what's interesting too, or for later midseason, I should say. What we're seeing is, you know, the other interesting piece of these schedules is that a lot of new shows, which would typically launch in the fall and receive the big part of the marketing and promotional budgets from these networks. First of all, most of these networks haven't picked up very many shows at all. And the new shows that they do have, very few of them are airing in the fall. ABC was probably the biggest bet when it was expecting to air two rookie shows sometime in the fourth quarter. Now it's down to one, the new David E. Kelly show, because the thinking on those is... They haven't even finished pilots. There's one pilot that was able to be finished this entire season, and it's on CBS. It's called Be Positive. That's the only pilot out of, what, 50-plus dramas and comedies that were able to, to complete before sh- production shut down. And the logic is, is that, we're, you know, these are shows that are going to require brand new sets to be built, finishing up the pilot, trying to figure out if what they have is if they're going in the right direction. No one's got given notes. You've got all seen scripts and backup scripts. But, yeah, I'm getting you know ahead of myself here. But, <laughs> yeah, the two basic schedules that you've seen are the Corona proof like Fox and CW and then the wishful thinking that CBS ABC and NBC are doing. And it's really business as usual. You know, ABC, if you want to get into the nitty gritty, they ditched, um, they're down to one night of scripted comedies. That's on Wednesdays. Tuesday comedies are gone, at least for now, with The Bachelorette there. Friday comedies are gone. They're going to, you know, bump Shark Tank back over there. The Connors gets, you know, Modern Family's old time slot. But, you know, the big question is when these shows are going to return. And like ABC, like CBS, and I'm sure like NBC, if they had put out an executive on the phone to talk about their schedule, <laughs> they're all basically expecting the same thing. Staggered returns. If a show is ready and they've got episodes and they can put it on, they're going to premiere it. So don't expect, you know, here, you know, sometime, you know, towards the end of the summer, you're going to say, here's ABC's fall premiere dates. That's not going to happen. You know, I, I talked to one showrunner the other day and he mentioned that I should note, you know, I, I talked to one broadcast showrunner the other day and, and he noted that he's anticipating getting ready to, to go back to production in August. But he's also kind of bracing for a possible second shutdown in October. And that's that's not uncommon right now, that kind of thinking, because, you know, October, you know, cold and flu season comes around and who knows what the world is going to look like then. So this this all just seems so presumptuous, absolutely every single bit of it. And I understand that they have that everyone has to stay in business. And so they have to make these announcements and they have to have at least the belief that they can do these things that they're saying. But they're also all in a position where TV viewing is going to be so far down this summer in all likelihood that they're not really going to be able to promote anything that they actually have if they're trying to roll anything out. And I don't know. I, I read your interview with Carrie Burke and it's a good interview, but I don't know what a, a quarantined 
bachelorette looks like even a in a bubble. I don't I don't see how that seems like a good idea. I don't have a clue how you produce Dancing with the Stars in a bubble. It's not like and and Fox is trying to do Masked Singer, too. So but, how do you do that in a bubble? Well, but the difference there is that Masked Singer is still a solo singing competition. And we saw this spring with American Idol and with the voice that you can do those there. There is a way where you can have somebody singing in a giant a ridiculous costume at home. Sure, whatever. <laughs> but in, but basically in a box is is the only point is that they're in a contained space because there's only one of them and they don't need to interact with anything else. And we just sort of suspend our disbelief on the amount of styling required to do that. But for something like that, and maybe the, you only need to do costumes from the waist up. Maybe I've it's it's all baffling to me. And it's all just everybody closing their eyes and saying, we have to believe that the, <laughs> that business is going to reopen in the fall, because otherwise I don't know how we're staying in business. And yet, right, which is the other piece. Yeah. I'm sorry to keep interrupting you. That's the other piece, too, is. You know, if you're an ad buyer, what schedule is more, I don't know, what, what schedule is sexier to you? Something on Fox with gently used programming like LA's Finest, which is two years old when it airs on Fox or ABC selling, hey, we're going to have Grey's Anatomy back. We don't know when, but it, it'll be there and you can buy an ad against it. I know what it gets my answer or where my money would go. Well, which one? Because one of them is a fantasy and the other one is at least potentially a reality. Like, yes, right. gently used programming is not all that exciting. But on the other hand, again, as we keep saying over and over again, what percentage of broadcast viewers have any aware th awareness that L.A.'s finest ever existed in the first place? Also but the, fair. But the thing is, I can guarantee you that that exists. I have watched episodes of that. I know that they could put them on the air tomorrow if they wanted to, if they had the rights. Whereas saying oh, Grey's Anatomy is going to come back or, oh, Dancing with the Stars, we've figured out how to do it, even though everyone's touching each other and sweating on each other and throwing each other around and all of that. Uh, it, that is a fantasy. L.A.'s finest. Say what you will about it. It is reality. And so, right. <laughs> you but know, what happens if, the, you know, on the flip side, too? And, and look, I'm definitely a glass half full person when you ask me about, you know, returning to, to normal here. I'm, I'm afraid to go to dinner with my family this weekend, which is why we're not doing that. But like, you know, when I'm thinking about this, it's like maybe who knows, maybe they can figure it out. And maybe, you know, Grey's Anatomy can figure it out. You know, Grey's Anatomy was the first show to, to, to shut down. Right. Everyone else followed quickly thereafter. But maybe they can figure it out and, and get it back up and running. And maybe it, it makes things easier. I don't know. That that seems like that seems ludicrous to me. So I don't know. You know, you, you think maybe these executives and schedulers and all these people know far more than we do about about this, considering they're having conversations with the studios who are in turn having conversations with the guilds about how this is all going to go down. But yeah, there's there's no you know, here we are. We're recording this on June 18th. There's no clear date for when TV is going to go back to work. And we talk and we're talking specifically here about broadcast. So, yeah. And, and let's be real. They know more than we do. They are having conversations about this. They know what it is going to take to do this. But they do not know more than we do about what's going to happen come September or October about an imaginary second wave of this. They are not epidemiologists. They do not know more than we do about that. And, and you have so to imagine they're all making backup plans for other things right now. I mean, Disney has gotten creative 
with some of the unscripted stuff it's done, like every other network, you know, you know, ABC and CBS, everyone's done these these from home quarantine specials and and found other things to do. The network that I'm I'm most interested in in seeing is Fox because look, MLB and we'll talk more about that later, but MLB may not come back. What happens if football is unable to to move forward? Fox is an independent broadcast network. They don't have other networks and a studio division to kind of pull to kind of fall back on and say, hey, oh shit, we need content. ABC aired The Last Dance, right? ABC aired a bunch of Disney movies, you know, that are streaming on Disney Plus. Like there's a library. CBS has scored, you know, thousands and thousands of programs and hour, hours of television across its divisions. Plus now they have all the Viacom stuff, I mean, and so on. But yeah, it'll be very interesting. And we should also note um, too, that there were some renewals. It's, you know, it's a, a crazy week when we're talking about renewals with these broadcast networks so much later. Um, so ABC and NBC both firmed up some of their uh, scripted slates. NBC picked up Manifest and as expected, canceled Rookies, Indebted, Bluff City Law and Sunnyside. ABC renewed for life and axed the Baker and the beauty. And I'm told there's already a, a sizable fan petition to save the Baker and the beauty. So I guess we're just going to talk more and more and more about this in the weeks to come until something actually happens. Yeah, for sure. Well, that takes us to our next topic. Number two. Up second, we've discussed how COVID-19 is impacting the broadcast schedules. Next, we're going to take a look at its impact on award season. This week, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has pushed back the 93rd annual Oscars from what was initially announced as a February 28th date all the way to April 25th. As part of the changes, the window of eligibility has been extended to cover all of 2020 and through to the end of February 2021. So, okay. Over on the TV side, the TV Academy announced that Jimmy Kimmel would return for the third time to host and produce its coronavirus altered Emmys. The ceremony is currently still scheduled for September 20th. Meanwhile, the creative arts ceremonies, those are going virtual with both the creative and primetime governor's balls both canceled. And in rule changes, Dan, this is more interesting. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts here. The Emmys will now feature eight nominees instead of seven in the best comedy and drama categories. And of course, the big question is what exactly the Emmy ceremony will look like, because no one really knows yet. No, no one really knows. I am personally glad that they're going back to a hosted telecast. I, I think that we... We all got a somewhat distorted perspective on what a hostless show looked like when the Oscars did it two years ago. Not that they wanted to do it. There was the whole, you know, Kevin Hart thing. But that ceremony happened to work. But then subsequently doing an Emmy telecast without it and then an Oscar telecast without it didn't really work nearly as well. And I'm happy to have it there because while Jimmy Kimmel is just Jimmy Kimmel, you kind of know what you're going to get. What you're going to get is a fairly professionally hosted telecast. And you'll also get a, a hosted telecast from a host who is fairly well established with his ability to treat serious things with seriousness. So in this exact moment, I'm perfectly happy to have Jimmy Kimmel attempt to find LARFs and attempt to be solemn when he needs to be solemn. I think he's probably a pretty good bet for that. And, and as a producer, you also get someone who knows how to do his show from home and to do it in a way that that resonates. 
Absolutely. And and the reason why the Emmys went hostless last year was just because they were on Fox and Fox doesn't have an established late night comedy person to just step in and do it. Whereas when ABC does the show, Jimmy Kimmel is the no brainer choice and he's done a fairly reliable job. I mean, you know, unless you choose to blame him for the whole La La Land Moonlight thing, which probably not really his fault. Definitely not his fault. <laughs> but <laughs> he's he's good at what he does, is my point. I don't think he reinvents the wheel. I don't think he's, you know, he's not, I don't know, he's not Johnny Carson. He's not Bob Hope. He's not Billy Crystal as award show host. But he's a pro. He he will do a good job. I You mentioned the rule change, which just makes sense. I, I don't think it's a, <laughs> all that revolutionary thing. If you go and read our buddy and friend of the five, uh, Scott Feinberg's story, the point he was trying to make in the story and the point that the Academy is making is basically to set a sliding scale on the number of eligible contenders and use that as the basis for how many nominees there are, which is exactly what they should be doing and probably what they should have been doing for years right more tv means and means more submissions means more nominees exactly and so the fact that he's also expecting that's probably going to extend to the acting categories as well and so for me if a number of the things that probably might get squeezed out in a five or six nominee field find a way into the field of eight I'm there for it. So if that means getting better things into the comedy series category, which it hasn't been previously, I am here for that. If that means that there's room for Jane Levy to get a nomination in the comedy actress category, which might have been a tough category otherwise, I'm here for it. Uh, Can we find a way to get Hank Azaria into an eight person field for comedy actor? I mean, I honestly doubt it, but he deserves to be there. So as long as they find a way to get some of the actual things that are worthy of nominees nations but haven't been nominated in the past few years in there, you know, get Ray Seahorn a nomination for Better Call Saul. For heaven's sakes, why is that complicated? Um, So that kind of thing, that makes me at least have optimism about them looking in the right direction. Yeah, and maybe it could also, you know, give some people of color an opportunity to get into categories that have usually been kind of reserved for, for the stalwarts. Yes. I, so there there are lots of potential ways that I can look at this and go, OK, this this should be a good thing. Uh, but with the Emmy voters, you never necessarily know when random complacency is going to come in. And if all this is going to do is allow for Modern Family to get a comedy series nomination and for and for half of the cast of Modern Family to suddenly make it back into the nomination rules. If that's all that this allows for, then it has not really been worth the effort. But we'll see. I, you know, never, never rule out potentially good things happening. Got to got to look on the bright side. (laughs) Yeah. And I do want to talk to touch on one. There was one tweet this week that, um, you know, it was Korea's version of the the Emmys and Oscars. And there were some photos from that ceremony that that hit on Twitter that uh, I just want to touch on. If you've seen them, they're on my Twitter feed. But it's basically, you know, look, the, the TV Academy does have the Microsoft Theater. And right now there's no way that, that we are going to have a large gathering. It's high. I would say it's highly unlikely. I don't have a crystal ball, obviously. It's highly unlikely that you're going to have a large gathering to be able to cram into the Microsoft Theater for the, for the Emmys. But Korea's awards basically had folks in formal attire sitting in chairs six feet apart with no guests. And the photos look kind of absurd. 
But at least they, you know, look, they, they had the award ceremony. That's more than, than we've had so far, really. So I don't know. Dan, have you seen those photos? What, what do you think? And what do you think the Emmys could do at this point if you were a betting man? If I were a betting man, I would not bet on them doing that. Also, keeping in mind the way that the Hollywood support industry works, the idea of any of these big stars going to the Emmys and not having their personal stylist, their publicist, their whatever's at hand, their partners, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, it seems highly unlikely. I think that probably the smartest way to handle it is something similar to what the NFL draft did. Uh, have people available at home with technology and and find a way to pipe people in to do speeches and don't do the show live, do it live to tape from a couple hours earlier. That that seems like a reasonable solution. The right, NFL, but you risk, but you risk that, you know, when the winner's leaking, oh, which takes everything out if you're going to try and broadcast it. And this is, of course, expected to be one of the bigger shows of, of the, the TV calendar in terms of ratings. I think no, I, there there are many risks and I can you know, again, the, the NFL draft did do it live. So, you know, it can be done. There are just you know, hundreds upon hundreds of nominees. So that makes it a lot more difficult. I don't know. It's 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 hard for me to it's easy for me to get interested in nominations and winners because I care about these things and I care about honoring good TV. It's very hard for me to get invested in how an award show is actually going to look and feel. I, I am curious, but I, I'm not going to get <laughs> deeply worked up about it, I don't think. Yeah, well, definitely a storyline that we will continue to monitor as the weeks go by here. Number three. Up third this week, we have talked about now how COVID has affected broadcast schedules and award season. And next up, here's how the pandemic is impacting the sports world. You know, Major League Baseball is currently, as we record, working out details on a season. There's a dispute if there's now it's going to be a 70 game season or a 60 game season. They've had three months of really ugly public feuds um, between in the press, between the players and Commissioner Rob Manfred and the billionaire owners. You know, this league, you know, we talk about baseball a lot on this show. Dan, I, I love it. It is Major League Baseball is my first love. I've loved it since I was eight years old. The league had a chance to be the first sport back and has blown that. The players in March agreed to a salary cut for the league, and now the owners are trying to push for a season. You know, in exchange for the salary cut, they said, as long as the owners can can get us a season with the most games possible, we'll, we will agree. Now ownership has tried to stall, and both sides appear, you know, now close. The ownership basically is now trying to say, we want fewer games because it costs us more money and we're, they're not going to have fans and we're losing all this money. And meanwhile, they just signed a what is has been reported as a billion dollar deal with Turner Sports to continue to carry postseason baseball. So you've got the owners crying that they're not making any money, then signing literally a billion dollar deal and the players saying you guys reneged on a on a deal to get get us to play the most games possible. And now they're nickel and diming over 10 games, which is effectively, I think, two hundred and fifty million dollars. So at a time of record unemployment and a global pandemic and it, it's safe to say my first love, Dan, is officially breaking my heart here. It's it's a mess. Uh, you mentioned the billion dollar deal with Turner Sports to carry baseball's postseason. And, and because we are, of course, a TV podcast, it is necessary for us to mention, of course, that Fox has built a lot of its fall as it has 
in recent years around baseball postseason. Uh, similarly, you have ABC with high hopes for the NBA finals. Uh, and these are things that bring a lot of ratings to the networks. And you look at what's happened to the ratings of ESPN basically over this entire thing. And they've done a lot of smart things. Bringing The Last Dance out early was a brilliant decision and it paid off well for them. And they've also and done a ABC good... ABC wound up, wound up re-airing it too, which helped ABC at a time when they didn't have a lot of originals in the pipeline and gave them generated some ratings for them too. And ESPN has also done a, a good job, better than they necessarily had with other past things of airing the Bruce Lee 30 for 30 and the Maguire Sosa 30 for 30 in the past couple of weeks. So they've been trying, but these networks all require live sporting events because, as we've said many, many times on this podcast, live events are the holy grail of TV ratings. And if you don't have it, it's a bad thing. I mean, I, I am sort of 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 several minds on this, the primary one being I like watching sports on TV. And so I would like to watch sports on TV. But I don't know. You're a Dodgers fan and the Dodgers are prohibitive World Series favorites and we're going to be anyway. If this is a 60 game season and an extended postseason is and the Dodgers make the World Series and the Dodgers win the World Series. Is that going to feel like the Dodgers won the World Series to you? No, not at all. I also don't think that they should play because, you know, we're in a global pandemic and all of these players have families. And are you expecting them to quarantine? Are, you know, you're, it's still a contact sport, even if it doesn't appear to be one when you watch on TV. You know, I mean, it's, it's not the same, you know. And the other thing is, you know, you've got Dr. Fauci who said that that Major League Baseball season shouldn't extend into October. Well, October is playoff baseball. It, it last, last year, I think it stretched into November. I mean, it has in the past stretched into November. That's the height of cold and flu season when everyone is expecting the second wave. And people are saying, don't even talk about the second wave because the first isn't even over. Yeah, we're in L.A. The numbers are climbing. It's terrifying out there. Why are we talking about about guys going out to play baseball? Just scrap the whole damn season. It's, it's a public safety issue. It's totally a public safety issue. And so there's also the it's a you know, they're trying to keep the sport alive, which I understand. And they're under and they're trying to keep the sport alive for its fans, which means that the fans presumably want it. I'm laughing at the idea of trying to keep the sport alive when you are you, you have billionaire owners saying that they, that they're they're not making any money. And when you have employees who depend on being able to sell peanuts at the at baseball games who are probably not being paid right now. And you've got record unemployment in, in the United States. It's it's completely ridiculous that they're trying to bring the season back for the fans. And I get that as a fan, I, I would watch, even though I don't think that they should play, I would relish to see Clayton Kershaw on the bump. I would love that in this era because baseball is, like I said, it is the thing that I love the most in this world, aside from my wife and family, but it's the thing that I've loved the longest in the, in my life. And the idea of them dragging this sport through the mud with these billionaire, like arguing over billions of dollars is, and I get it, it's a business, but what they have done to this game, what the commissioner, what, what Rob Manfred has done to this game is disgusting. You look at the, at, at just everything he's done, you know, the slap on the wrist to the Astros. I mean, I don't 
how, how much time do you have, Dan? I don't want to get into it here, but I have very strong feelings about how Manfred is ruining this game that I love so much. It's it's so strange. And then so, OK, if you know, lots of fans are like, OK, I will happily watch whatever it is that they put in front of me. And that's fine. But all all I can think of is how little a 50 or 60 game season is going to feel like an actual baseball season. And then you realign the, all of the divisions and you'd get rid of the designated hitter in the National League. So it's so it's not even baseball as recognizable baseball. And that's before you start getting into questions of, OK, well, is the team that wins the World Series? Is anybody going to look at that team as the World Series winning team? No, Maybe, probably no. not. No. And, and that's just the big asterisk. That's before you get into the next asterisk of, let's say, on the eve of the World Series. And I don't know, Cody Bellinger test positive for COVID-19, God forbid. And then the Yankees win the World Series because the Dodgers played without Kershaw and Bellinger, who both tested positive. Well, then it's like a double asterisk. But then and, you do you even play those games because you then you would imagine that the entire Dodger organization has been exposed and maybe in asymptomatic. And then the World Series is canceled. And, and then what what exactly have you played the previous right. 75 games for? And then that's before you get into the question of how many different young players because of insufficient warm up and preparation time. How many young top or prospects veteran. or your veteran are going to blow out their elbows and are going to have to miss the entirety of next season because they were rushed to the mound or onto the field for a 60 game season. That that's completely in, meaningless. The, that's completely meaningless. And that in the scenario you just laid out, uh, they cancel the World Series anyway because one of the teams tests positive. What yeah. you know, if if you are a team that sees your number one prospect blow out his elbow and have to miss the entirety of next year and much of the year after for an imaginary baseball season, what what exactly has that accomplished for that yeah. franchise? It's and you know, and the other you know, there's two two other pieces that let's get to quickly because I know that a lot of our listeners don't love when we talk about sports here, but. <laughs> You know, the other piece is the players and the ownership and the commissioner have had three months to iron out details, the financial details. They haven't even gotten to the safety protocols yet, Dan. That's what's that the most preposterous thing is that they're arguing over money first and then safety second. And that's just backwards. It, and on the other hand, on that one, if you if you go and look at what the NBA has done, I strongly recommend checking out. Any of the summaries of the 150 page bubble document that the NBA put out for how players are going to handle things for what the NBA is planning on doing, because it is so crazy. Like they have the details of how many people can play cards in the locker room before games. They have the details on where players can and have to shower. It is a wild document. They've basically given the thought that baseball has thus far apparently given no evidence that they've given and the stuff they've given thoughts to it's madness and doesn't even get into what happens if via some random hotel person bringing room service LeBron James gets COVID-19 and has to go into quarantine for 14 days just as they're starting the playoffs. It is it 
Uh, anyway, we could talk about this for a long time, but I don't know that we necessarily need to yeah. talk about it anymore. Well, there is one last thing that I wanted to say, and that's in terms of scheduling, you know, Major League Baseball on Fox, you know, they, they carry the World Series every year. That's only a few hours, a few nights a week. You know, if it goes to, you know, beyond, you know, four games or whatever it is this year, they probably have a backup plan for a few hours like that. What they don't have a backup plan for, Dan, is the NFL. So... Fox doesn't have a backup for Thursday night football. I I don't know if NBC does, but considering that they've got, you know, Bravo and USA and and all these and sci-fi and Peacock and all these library titles, NBC, I'm not worried about. But Fox, should the, the NFL not be able to play, they don't have a backup plan. ABC, I'm sure, has a backup if the NBA finals can't go off without a hitch. Um, but yeah, that's it's just a lot of questions. And it's all to me you know, you're, you're fighting over billions of dollars and not taking safety into consideration. And that's, that's just wrong. Well, with that up next is our showrunner spotlight. Number four. Joining us this week are Rollin Jones and Ron Fitzgerald, co-showrunners and co-creators of HBO's update of Perry Mason. Together, they've worked on shows including Friday Night Lights and Weeds, while Jones has also worked on Boardwalk Empire and The Exorcist, and Fitzgerald worked on Westworld and Last Resort. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks for, Thanks having, for us. having us. Yeah, man. You know, we like to start with development and, you know, this Perry Mason had a long process. Uh, I think it's at least eight years started as a movie with uh, Robert Downey Jr. attached not only to star, but to exec produce. And then with Nick Pizzolatto from True Detective attached. Can you talk us through when and how you guys got involved and how many of those pieces and different incarnations were, were in place when you joined and when you signed on? They were just some stories that were told around a campfire because when we came yeah. in, we saw nothing of it. So we, I've never, yeah. we don't, uh, I think we were sort of brought in to take one more, one more stab at something that had been uh, lingering in the, in the downy brain uh, for a while. I remember, I think I, I got the call. I was like, they want to do a TV show of Perry Mason. I, I might have hung up then. Uh, they might have had to <laughs> call me back, you know. I think you just kind of go through the the why of it all. What, what, uh, Perry Mason, holy lord! What, what is, who's who's clamoring for that? Um, which is exciting because we I don't think we came around to it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's all to say. A call comes in. Uh, do you want to do it? Met with uh, um, Susan Downey uh, and, and Robert Brief. I basically said I wanted I, I wanted to do it with uh, with Ron Fitzgerald because he's a guy that I had written with on. On a couple of shows, we sort of shared a, a, like a story mind together. We were a little bit of a, uh, a you know, a little block of uh, so we hadn't written together, but we, we sort of had the same story ideas. And Ron loves all this detective shit, and I loved Los Angeles, so sort of sort of went from there. Fitz, bail me out, my God. <laughs> No, that, I mean, that was that was it. Yeah. But by the time, you know, when we came into it, we, I don't think we had a whole lot of uh, really no knowledge of the storied history of, of its development. So we kind of we, we started uh, fresh. We were just I think a big relief for us was the question. Number one was uh, when you say Perry Mason, do you mean Raymond Burr or are we <laughs> cool to do? Because I don't want to do that Raymond Burr thing. That's been done, been done very well. And it's kind of sacrosanct to a lot of people, and I don't want to touch it. Um, and, and even aside from that, what can you really, I think, add? 
in this day and age to the courtroom drama. I mean, they've all, it's been done and it's been done very, very well. So for us, it was a big relief when um, Susan and Robert were interested in Perry Mason of the novels, who's early 30s and much more of an investigator than a lawyer. Actually spends like no time in court. <laughs> I kind of wondered, like after reading the first whatever, seven or eight books, you're like, where the hell did they get the Raymond Burr idea? Like when? when <laughs> Yeah, he's more like a, you know, in the novels, he's more like a, a one-man shop. A guy, like, a, it feels like, you know, I mean, Della will occasionally get him a cup of coffee, and, and Paul will do the, the the bit of shoe leather that no, he doesn't want to write about, and then come back yeah. and sort of uh, uh, fill it in. But he was more like, I mean, the modern equivalent would be like Ray Donovan. He was a fixer. You got a problem, you go knock on the door, uh, Perry Mason, he's going to help you out, because you, you, you're getting railroaded. Well, as they pitched it to you, what value did the Downies and HBO see in the brand of Perry Mason and sort of what was sacrosanct about it versus what they said, just go off and go nuts on it? We've said this a number of times, but uh, the Bible, Goosebumps, Harry Potter, and then number four for the history of humanity is Perry Mason in terms of book sales. I know, right? It's 300 just, million. It's, it's incredible. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, you'd be surprised that like, uh, you know, and my guess is probably it's like the dearth of IP out there, right? Everything's been yeah. done. So they kind of found something that like, wait, this is in two incarnations been the most ridiculously popular thing in the entire planet. Um, it's just been, uh, you know, 55 years since that happened. So I think they, you know, maybe they thought. Surely they'll get it right the third time. <laughs> <laughs> what are the odds uh, that these two knuckleheads could totally screw it up? Yeah, what, <laughs> what jackasses do we have out there that could, uh, that could shame us all? Oh, I know these guys. Well, let's call them up. We have a dump truck full of money that we don't want. <laughs> Let's and, just and, light it on fire. And Robert Downey Jr. Was, was originally supposed to star in this, but where in that process did he make the decision? Because this has been his passion project. He has wanted to do this yeah. for some time now. At what point did he, you know, were the conversations like, you know, maybe this isn't the right thing for him? Like what, you know, talk us through how that changed. And obviously your new lead is, is no schlub either. So. Oh, gosh, yeah. With Robert, it was it really just came down to his schedule. It was impossible with all the movies he had lined up. The window of opportunity that was going to be happening at HBO it just wasn't going to fit. So, you know, he went and, and all along the way, he, he tried, I, I think, until the absolute last minute. Like, no, no, I can make it work. I can make it work. And it was like, well, maybe I can make three episodes work or maybe I could do a one off, you know, because <laughs> he, he and he's really, really been supportive and wanting to be involved in the entire process. It just. The guy's a busy, in-demand dude. You'd also be a fool to, like, kind of walk in and see, you know, as many things as they have in, in, uh, you know, in development over at Team Downey in Venice. But, you know, there's the Iron Man statue right over there. And then, you know, he's got a Sherlock there. You got to be a friggin' moron like to, like to think, you know, oh, yeah, we're going to like you just got to. It, it was always going to be a fortunate break if he was going to if he was going to be in it, I think. Um, you have to you have to find some love for it with or without Robert. Um, I think. Well, now you both talked about sort of being drawn to it because they said you can go back to the Earl Stanley Gardner books rather than necessarily the TV series. But what did you guys both come into this with in terms of actual background with those books or even with the with the TV series other than a name? Uh, for me, zero. I'd never <laughs> read any of the books. 
Um, I think I'd noticed uh, Perry Mason on in the background at my grandmother's house a few times, you know, maybe something like that. And I mean, I was I knew Raymond Burr was always like, isn't it true on the night of the 12th? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, but I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even know that they had made movies in the 30s with like Warren Williams and, and the Thin Man did one, you know, and it was just like, what? William Powell. It's just like. I didn't know any of that stuff until we started getting into this. But I'd always been a fan of, uh, you know, like Chinatown, the Bogart Noirs. Like I've read a ton of Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, all that stuff. So like that world was very exciting. It's kind of odd, I think, now that I've read those early Perry Masons. Like, why didn't they ever read any of this? Like, I just kind of wasn't aware of it. You know, obviously, you you mentioned at the top of the show that this is not he doesn't you don't spend a lot of time in court with this one. But what do you I wonder, what do you gain from not starting with Perry as a lawyer in this. So look, so he read, he, how many is it? 80, 87 novels? Um, go, 80, I think. Yeah, go ahead and read them um, and try to find out um, <laughs> where he lives, what his favorite food is. Uh, <laughs> uh, if, if he ever had a brother or sister, I, you, like uh, these things were rigged to solve mysteries. And uh, they were, you know, they were they were really, really elegant page turners. Um, but, you know, if you're signing up to do it for HBO, you know, you, you're you're done right there. They're not doing that. Um, and I'm not particularly interested in, in doing that either. Um there was the first four days or three days we were in the quote unquote room, not that we ever really had a room, uh, but we had a collection of people who would wander in occasionally and also be on staff. But, uh, um, and we were just, you know, you know, there was the basic premise uh, he, that Robert had sort of come with, which was, hey, he was a lawyer, but he's quit and he's, he's, he's or, or shit went down and now he's not. And he's like off alone and there's a case that drags him back in. And uh, we we dragged our ass for three days on that. It was so so mind mind bogglingly boring. And then Fitz <laughs> Fitz was like, "Hey man, you know why don't we? Uh, what, what if he's just a detective at the beginning?" And I was like, "Huh? What? Huh? Like?" The, and it was one of those. Uh, let's do an origin story. It came around, and then let's start mining those first eight books for some stuff that we can use as ten poles going forward. Um, this is where this is the man he became. How did he become that? Um, and uh, actually, it felt very. Um, if you, again, if you read these first three books, again, he's 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 out there on the street for the most part, trying to find you know innocence for his clients. And it actually seemed like a no brainer and a lot more fun to try to to try to get there. And it, you know, and a journey and a destination. We we all have this idea about what he became and what his what he's rightfully known for. So you know. How did he get there? What's the struggle? And, you know, when, she, when we were zeroing in on Robert's age, it was very, very interesting. A, a man who finds himself late in life. I don't know. I was like, OK, maybe there's something there. Well, I'm curious about the backstory and how you crafted what it is, because as you say, Roland, this is this is not a character who has a a wealthy, rich backstory, either in the books or in TV, which pretty much gives you carte blanche to do whatever you want. So how did you decide what the signposts in his past were that you wanted to bring out? I mean, I think a lot of it was just what interested us. You know, we, we, we started to look at the elements that we wanted to play with when researching the, the period. We were freed up in terms of not having to Velvet Claws was the first book. So, OK, we don't have to do that story. So what story do we want to do? What's going on in L.A.? We found it interesting that they were heading into the Olympics. Thirty two Olympics were coming. That what what was L.A. trying to sell to America in terms of who they were or wanted to be? Um, what was it, what was happening with this town? We, we had seen that the town had grown 
Rollins better on the gross stats. What is it from sixty thousand? They were like you know uh, when when Perry, when our character Perry Mason was born, it was a town of like you know roughly forty agrarian town of forty five thousand, and by the time he's there, it's a million three. And I, I think maybe the only modern equivalent would be like. Dubai or, you know, maybe two or three uh, cities in China. It's just the, the explosion of like a transformation that you you saw as a native Angelino. We're like, oh, that that that's got to be quite assaulting and strange and weird. With that kind of setup and to think about what what this person's watching in terms of uh, a way of life coming to an end, a new one kind of being born. You're in the middle of the depression. You've got prohibition going on. Uh, a lot of things are shifting. I mean, you know, it, it goes on and on, right? Look outside our windows today. So that just became, I think that became interesting to us. And then once you, once we started playing with the notion of an Amy Semple McPherson type, you know, you, you get into notions of faith. You figure his age means that he most likely was in World War One. That gets into questions of, you know, what happened to you over there. And it just kind of started to, I think, in a weird way, define itself. And then plus, when you once we once uh, Matthew Reese comes aboard, you know, we have our ideas. We're able to sit down with him and go, this is what we're thinking. Is that working for you? Like what what's it becomes more of a partnership. Yeah, you're basically grafting on to like some some things from the novel, like some some giant sort of statements he's made about justice or right and wrong. Um, and then you're grafting that onto particular 1930s Los Angeles history. Um, and that sort of becomes, you know, the, the, the formula on how you how you build it. Well, is there a danger of sort of giving an impression that you're using Perry Mason and the name almost as a Trojan horse? Or are you guys OK with the idea? You know, we we're using this as a vehicle. No, but that's why, that's why I'm OK with it. <laughs> but I mean, that's also why we did kind of keep going to like, OK, uh, grab some some things that Earl Stanley Gardner put into this guy's mouth because he didn't give us any background story. He didn't give us any sort of character, but he did give us a point of view on the world. And so like start using that. But you got to you got to remember, like Earl Stanley Gardner was involved in the in the in the show in the in the 50s and 60s. He was there as one of the one of the producers. And he took what were a very different set of, of, of social mores in the 30s and took his plots and threw them himself as an author into what they made in the 50s and 60s. So I think, you know, we we kept asking ourselves once, well, what would Earl Stanley Gardner do? And if you read anything about what he was like when he wasn't typing, I think we felt very, very comfortable that we that we were doing him honor and, and being reverential by being aggressive, because I think he was uh, he, he turned over his same material over over and over again. And he also, like, if you watch, there's so many um, reissues of his books, and a lot of them he would write new prefaces for, and they're, they're, those are really cool to look at. I mean, he had a very—he, like Rollins saying, he's trying, he's trying to say something about law and justice and, and how it should work. Like how what it means to be a nation of laws, which felt even before. I mean, we're talking two years ago for us, right? When we're doing this, and, and two years ago, we're th you know you're thinking like, well, look, are we a nation of laws or aren't we? You know, and 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 I think that started to be, and now without being a Trojan horse, you start looking at it and go, what does Perry Mason represent? I think he represents the notion that the justice, the legal system, is supposed to be fair. It is supposed to apply evenly to everyone. When you get in there. And then does it. And if it doesn't, who's the guy who does his best to make sure it does? Well, I think that sort of brings up my next interesting point is that in this drama, as you guys have set it up, I'm pretty sure just about every cop in this story is either 
corrupt or gradually beginning to realize that the system around them is corrupt and that they can't get justice through the system. I'm curious how you approach the law enforcement aspect of it and how, as you look at the world around you, how you feel like this is going to play differently now premiering this Sunday versus maybe how it would have premiered at a different time. Oh, that's it's a big question. I know the question of that life raft. Uh, okay, uh, so um, we're mostly interested from you know from the uh, the center of the show is Perry, and you widen that lens out, and it's Della and Paul, um, and, and and widen out from there. So first and foremost, those are the three people that we generally a little bit with Eb Jonathan uh, go home with. So the one cop that we're going home with has a very particular, you know, spot in, in you know, the LAPD. He has the badge. Uh, he's got the nightstick. But based on, you know, being, uh, you know, you know uh, black, he doesn't have that power. And that there's an interesting tension and frustration there about this job that's supposed to be out, that's supposed to have status and elevation, and you don't you don't have that. Um, there is a, a, there is obviously two other cops that we sort of follow, detectives on their side, and those have two different, I think, gradations of you know what do you want to say about working within that system whether one is wildly exploiting it and one is sort of caught in between, and even the DA is one of those people that slowly. As he, as the, the the truth of the case comes out, begins to go. Oh, Alf, I'm, how deep am I in this now? And what's the decision? Do I cut and run and don't? And it's all about, uh, you know, an exploration of power when you get institutional power around, um, and you're an individual within that. It can be very, very tricky on how to how to navigate that because you still have to bring home a paycheck and feed a family, and then uh, you know it's also open to people who are not good people and can exploit that system. Um, and uh, you know, uh, tale as old as time, unfortunately, right? Ninety years later, we got body cams, and uh, for, for us and uh, and for back then, you know, what we we got a, a TV show that premieres ninety years later to tell that story, but same goddamn thing, I think. You know, my question, too, as a follow here is we are in a moment now where there is a major movement to defund the police here. And obviously, Black Lives Matter continues to be and rightfully so at the forefront of of our discussion as a culture. And as part of that, cop shows you know, like Law and Order, et cetera, and among many, many others are now under the microscope. I wonder, you know, in success, you guys get a season two on this, which I can't imagine you wouldn't. How might you explore the today's issues in a show like Perry Mason? Like, do you have an idea to, you know, about exploring leaning harder into just a few bad apples, all of that nonsense? And, you know, is that something that you're talking about? And and from a bigger picture, how do you think cop shows move forward given, you know, the, the hero cop trope, right? You know, can, can cop shows move forward? Like, can you watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine right now, which is a show that Dan and I both love, no, and root for those characters, knowing that in, you know, turning on the news and seeing what's happening on the news. You know what I mean? Like, this is yeah. a loaded question and I'm not saying it well, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> I love that you did it. Guys, like, like, like hey, to... You guys are going to get future seasons. That was so nice of you, Leslie. I wanted to focus on that part. Hopefully uh, people are listening at HBO and they hear you rooting for a season two. No, I think you have to. But seriously, like, how can you 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 100 percent? Going forward, you 100 percent have to know what's going on outside your window. You have to if you're trying to write about 
a- anything. I think you, everything that's happening has to influence it and impact it. And you have to look at, it, it, it doesn't have to, I don't think about, like, you're not going to in 1933, 34, whatever, you're not going to make an argument about whether or not, you know, what does defunding the police mean and all that stuff. That That's not going to matter. But you can absolutely talk about systemic racism. You can absolutely talk about how how uh, people are denied power, how people are kept down, um, how how uh, a system that's set up for for justice is is uh, corrupted. I mean, you can actually absolutely talk about a reality of today in terms of certain aspects of the system and how it works and set it back and then without making it necessarily like back to what you said about a Trojan horse. I don't think you sit down to write. I'm going to write a story about about Armand Aubrey or George Floyd being murdered, right? I mean, th- we, we see that outside. That's happening. But but how, how? What happens next? What are the What are the things that are like? For me, like Ron was saying, here we are. What ninety years later, nothing's much has changed, right? From what we're, the world we're presenting in Perry Mason, and obviously you can go way back further than 1930 uh, to show it. it. But and and then today, what's going on today? I mean. It's this. It's nothing's changed. But maybe today we finally have gotten to to a point where we can talk about it in a different way, and we can talk about doing something significant instead of just these little patches that seem to get thrown on every time something horrible happens. Yeah, the the the, the hood of the car is is open, right? Everybody can look inside now, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and you'll find, you know. Look, there's going to be some thoughtful police there, too. You're going to just have, you know, there's going to be some hero cops amidst, the, amidst uh, this, this great radical transformation that, that desperately needs to happen. Militarization and all that, you know, the, uh, and the, the, you know, historical prejudices and, you know, how it is and PTSD for cops, too. All sorts of things you can do. You're just yeah. going to have to tell a, a way more, I think, nuanced and, uh, and, and complex story. And I, that's a great thing. That's that's it's only going to make those shows more interesting and, and, and vital. Is is there a layer of, of cynicism that almost has to be baked in because the, the Raymond Burr show, not a cynical show. It's a it's a very much if we wait long enough, eventually Raymond Burr is going to save the day because, damn it, he's the good guy fighting the good fight. I, I'm not sure that what you guys have crafted here has that same optimism about the system. <laughs> You you write about uh, these when you're looking at these reboots about anything, right? You're always trying to reflect the the time in which they did it. It would be impossible to do the 1950s and 1960s, uh, you know, version of that show. Now, not that the 50s and 60s weren't also, uh, you know, super (laughs) fucked up, too. Uh, But, uh, uh, you know, I mean... What, I don't even know why this is popping into my head, but uh, Spielberg's War of the Worlds, you know, that looked like 9-11, right? That, that was, you're just kind of, you're taking these fundamental universal stories, in this case of this character, and uh, it should, you know, there's always the, the part of the, the burn you have of putting the mirror onto, they always ask when you first get into these rooms, why now? Even HBO, who gave us the job a year into it, it's like, so why? we doing Perry Mason? <laughs> you're like, it's a great, you know, you have to constantly kind of, kind of ask that question. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, you know, that's, yeah, we're, it, this is, this feels right for this age. This feels, you know, this feels like the Perry Mason for here and now. 
Yeah, and you're, I think it's it's always it, the thing that you're going to have to do ultimately, other than any of these, you know, ideas and the, and the big themes and stuff like that. I think it's really about showing the, the the humanity of the individual characters. And if you are if you are talking about uh, a Paul Drake, it's not just like. Paul Drake does this over here and then that's it. Like, but how, how is what's happening in society affecting Paul Drake when he goes home? How's it affecting his home life? What what are the conversations he's having that you don't see on TV? And I think that's honestly like with what I see happening outside with the protests with, with people, it feels like, we're uh, finally starting to really rip off the blinders of a lot, my, myself included, man. I mean, you certainly knew, you, you know, we, we've all been aware of the, the, the people getting shot, the violence that's going on, especially targeted at black men. I mean, you're aware of that. But I don't think until very recently, even from my fucking stupid white ass, I really didn't think it was that entrenched. I really didn't think it was that widespread. Like, I, I, maybe I just, I'm stupid and I didn't want to believe it because I don't encounter it every fucking day because it doesn't affect my life. I'm not afraid if I get pulled over, uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to fearing for my life. And, but to acknowledge, to, to, to see what fucking people are dealing with every fucking day. Uh, and that's just, that's what I want to, I guess, talk about the stuff that I don't know about the stuff that, that is, is maybe uncomfortable or makes me scared and, and because of my position, you know, and because it's like, oh, I'm a straight white guy. So like I have it, I do, I have it easy. I have white, I'm privileged. I mean, let's face it, it's it's true. So what are the things that you can do to give, give voice to the stories that haven't been told? Like how can we show the humanity of everybody involved in the struggle for something better? And not, in, in, you know, it's not necessarily about I don't have a plan. I don't know what the right way to go forward is, but it can't be, we can't just sit still and do nothing. It can't be this again. Right. I mean, so, so all that said, I mean, how are you thinking about season two? Does that, how, how much of, of what you're, you're thinking about now if, can maybe get into where your, your head is at for, should you get a season two? I think a lot of it, I mean, honestly, like, you know, you're still, you're still, you were still, we don't have it yet. So we don't know. Like, I can't tell you it. The story is this, but right. I can hundred like percent tell pitch, you that like, yeah, it's got a hundred percent of it has to be about like, what is the, in 1930, whatever, what is happening in the black community of Los Angeles? What power do they have? What power are they hoping to get? Like, what is that struggle? Then you have, look, we have, I can't really, I can't spoil some things for the thing, but you have Della Street, you have uh, other characters who, who are, 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 have their own struggles, right? Um, and, and what, what, uh, you have to, I think you have to really lean in and try to give, give voice to all of, all of those struggles and really show what they want and what is keeping them from getting it in a, in a, in a really like in a systemic way for sure. But also like, what does that mean to you as an individual? You know, cause it's always, it seems like you can write these things where it's like, uh, I want justice for X. And at the end of the show, you either get justice for X or you don't get justice for X. But that doesn't seem to be enough anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, I, you know, I, it, I think it, if you if you look closely at like like who are the who are the characters that are probably going to be you're going to be following. I think there's there's evidence about where we wanted to make sure that we were able to go down every street and all the nooks and crannies of 1932 Los Angeles. Um, it was an aggressively, you know. The migration's about to happen from from like Cleveland and Detroit and the South, but mostly these were mid uh, these were Midwest uh, white flight that came into Los Angeles. So we constructed the show to make sure that we were going forward going to have an opportunity to see the rest of the city too. 
Well, it almost at that point becomes a, a sort of a restating of my Trojan horse question, because if you sort of are fascinated by what's happening with Paul Drake in the African-American community, and if you're interested in the, I don't know, with the Latino immigration into Los Angeles and sort of how the city shaped itself as a melting pot, how do you keep interest on Perry Mason as a character if he's kind of the white antihero at the center, but if you're interested in all these other stories? I mean, I don't know. Anthology. <laughs> Season to... two is a, d- a totally different story, but Perry Mason is black. No, but I mean, look, go. you got, I, we thought of we, what we liked about Perry Mason, uh, you know, uh, was that he was a native Angelino, um, which is, you know, he's got this general idea that, you know, everybody transplants over here, but he was there from the beginning. He saw the radical transformation of that city. But you basically, you got a war criminal, a black guy, and a lesbian. <laughs> like, they got to come together as the super friends to go solve. I got a feeling we got everybody there, that we got enough there that we can... Uh, that, that we can we can tell a variety, an aggressive variety of stories. And his love interest is, you know, from Mexico. Come on. We, you know, we, you know, we, we, we touched up. We gave a taste of Los Angeles that I think uh, that uh, that still held water back in the day um, and, and can and go forward and tell stories that everybody wants to see. And it's, it, it seems to me, too, that you don't necessarily you don't you don't have to structure the case to. The case is, you know, the plot is what gets you from A to B, right? That's the clothesline. And then we come and we all the character stuff or all the cool shirts and dresses and whatever that we hang on the clothesline. And that's that's to me like where you get into the stuff. It's how this how does this case lead you into these different worlds and different struggles? Then you can see what's going on without it. I mean, that's this I guess the sneaky aspect of the Trojan horse thing is to really I think if I don't know why I become lately I just I think like I just think that the more – if you can just show people's struggles, whoever they are, if, they, if you can just humanize everybody and make sure that you see them as a, as a human person, not as a political point, that, that you, that's where you can identify with people. And I think that like – I think that when Americans can start talking to each other in that way, I think things have a chance of, of – uh, people have a chance of being heard. Things have a chance of changing instead of all these lines being drawn on like, you know – the cops all stick together because that's that's what they do. And then, you know, you're either with us or against us, this kind of stuff. You know, you're either flying the flag or you hate the country kind of stuff. I mean, there has to be we have to be able to kind of group as Americans and humans. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the attraction to these stories, right, is ultimately you're catching people at their most vulnerable. They're people at when they've made panicky, their worst decisions in life. And, you know, where does judgment and where does forgiveness come in and all of that? And how do you how do you weaponize kindness and generosity when, you know, you are facing sometimes uh, humanity at its worst? That's that's why we like these 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 shows and and these things. We just uh, continue to have to make these aggressively interesting and three dimensional. Now, Roland, you mentioned at the very beginning that when you were brought in on this you and Ron had worked together in the past multiple times, but you weren't a writing partnership. I'm curious uh, what you guys got out of this experience of actually being partners on this and how you look at it going forward, because I know, Roland, you have a an AMC deal that's a solo deal. So how you look for going forward at solo projects versus things you've gained from working together? 
I mean, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll start. I mean, it, the, my greatest joy on this show was the privilege of being in the room with Ron Fitzgerald. I've admired him for a great deal of, of, of since I since I met him. We got to eat a lot of great burritos in uh, Atwater Village <laughs> and uh, and and have a number of Negronis. Uh, and there was a you know there's a joy to the and, and a unique ecosphere of like what happens between me and Ron. Ron, if you want to write. A scene where two fucking people are sitting there for five minutes and talking at a, 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 a cafe. Do not come to me for that. That is Ron Fitzgerald. You want that, uh, like the, the, the people living, inhabiting life or being in between those moments. That's what's that's what's great and lovely and how you can take. Uh, uh, and, I, and I think just in here, it's swapping back and forth scenes. You take this, I'll take that. Um, the joy and pleasures of uh, and 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 just having someone to raise your game a little bit and to just to see it from a different light. It's, it's uh, a lot of times, you know, writing stinks, man. It sucks. Who wants, to, who wants to live with themselves? So when you can, you know, do it in this collegial matter, I don't know, was that part was, was, was super great. Was, was super cool. I agree. And then also Rollin picked up most of the bar tabs. So that was really, <laughs> really good. No, I think that, I mean, it's been like Rollin said, I mean, the, the best part of the experience was working with me. No, um, no, the, uh, the <laughs> no, it was, uh, I mean, it's such a, it was such a, a joint effort. It was such like a, a great partnership because I feel like we did manage to push each other to do better. And also like we, you, you just have that other perspective. I think what it really opened me up to is like the standard, I think for most of Hollywood stuff is that one person writes one script. I mean, I know they're different writers will take, but I really, I really enjoyed like Ron was just saying a second ago, having that, uh, having a moment of being like honest with yourself and being like, I don't know how to write this scene. I just fucking don't. And instead of me doing a shitty version and then getting and then insisting it be shot, you know, you can go, someone help me, Ron. Like, what the fuck do I do? Or like, what is this? Or, or give me an idea or, or something. Or you write it or like, let's just kind of fucking come at it a different way. And um, I think that made the made everything a lot better. And I think having having somebody like having two different perspectives on everything, there are plenty of things that I would have blown off. But Rollin would want to drill down on. And those are some of the best moments in the show. Yeah, and then look, and, and then again with the strange room that we had, the trickle in uh, writers. We had uh, Kevin Hines, who oh, here's a great TV thing. He's a he's a lead character in front of the camera on the Jinx for crying out loud. Uh, he, Kevin he, J. He, Hines. Uh, um, so he was he was sort of our our, our go to lawyer writer, um, and then Eleanor Burgess and Sarah Sarah Kaplan and Steve Hanna and then Howard Corder. We had a bunch of people along the way who you know in a in a two year process. And just, just, you know, two years to write eight scripts. It's a, it's a lot of time. So that there's a lot going on. A luxury, you could say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's that part of it. There's another part of that yeah. story, too. Uh, <laughs> but you just occasionally. Or you really start f thinking about gun barrels and mouths and, you know. Uh, look, there was a, look, there was a lot, of, lot of money involved and a, and, and a big investment on this. So, you know, things, things take some time. And, you know, there's a lot, a lot of chefs want to come in there. But you always just needed some new blood and some, some and it's you know it's it's just a total fallacy of, of television making uh, that it's you know it's two guys just sitting there eating burritos yeah. and drinking Negronis and then, and then suddenly there it is it's all that nonsense um, it's a real it's a real real group effort and the writing doesn't you know the writing 
really, in a lot of ways, starts when the actors start speaking it, too. So you got to still have your hard hat on. Uh, and it's not like, replicate this thing that's in my head. Let's see what they give him. And then yeah. how it's edited in it. So it's a long, long, dumb process. 100%. That's uh, yeah, and then you know, obviously, you got Tim Van Patten coming in, and Tim's got different ideas on on uh, you know what things, what things should look like, how things should go. He's got a different feel for it. That's and like Ron was saying, every single actor, and that's uh, we. I think we. It's safe to say we sat down with, just, yeah, we sat down with every single actor, and if things you you walk away from that with a better understanding. You know, they come to you going, why am I saying the stuff that I'm saying? I mean, not exactly that. Uh, and then and then but then they start to tell you why. And you're like, oh, yeah, that sounds way better than what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, or, yeah, yeah, let's do it that way. Let's let's change it to make it make sense for you, because now you're taking it over. And that I think that's such a cool the whole handoff of that baton as the show gets made is really interesting when when it suddenly goes from your head to the page, to the director, to the actor, to the crew, like every single person is so invested. I mean, we were. We were really, really, really fortunate to have um, just, um, I think like Roland was saying, we had just such, so much talent top to bottom. Every, every person on the crew, every designer was really invested and a joy to work with and, and busted their butts every day. You know, we always like to wrap these interviews with the same question. What are you guys watching and enjoying right now? Oh, Christ. Uh, I've been <laughs> watching a lot of Shit's Creek. I, mean, <laughs> I never, I know, right? I mean, talk about total escapism. I will watch. Uh, I watch Shit's Creek on the computer in bed with my wife every night, and she falls asleep because she's already seen the show most of the time. And uh, I'm enjoying it because I never had time to watch it. So I watch that, and then I watch like I like watching um, like Forged in Fire, like things that have no story and just require me to watch a man take a piece of steel and bash it into something like that's that's very relaxing for an hour or like worse chefs. You know what I mean? Like here's somebody who sucks at something worse than I suck at things. That's great. Let's watch this. Maybe there's <laughs> redemption to be found in this person making a hot dog, you know? Awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would constantly, um, uh, just going back to my laptop to see if uh, MLS and the LAFC is ever getting back to, uh, to, to, to the season. Cause I desperately miss, Sports are really helpful for me to turn off. You're in TV. You don't want to watch a lot of TV because you're in the middle of making making it. So uh, I miss sports desperately. I tried to get everybody involved in Korean baseball. Couldn't get anybody excited about that. Um, so I've been. He did try very hard. So <laughs> I have been given a, a giant, uh, a, a huge, dumb franchise uh, at AMC uh, to start working on. Um, so I have actually been re- watching a lot of. Kubrick and Jonathan Glazer in preparation for that. So that's mostly what I've been. But please, yeah, please come back, MLS. Please come back, Carlos Vela. Uh, Dan and I are big baseball fans, so we can definitely commiserate. Oh, I, had, uh, I, had tickets, I had tickets for the new home run seats. I had three games for the new home runs. The first row where they, you could drink, uh, and they and they had the, like, the beverage and the food there in, out, in the outfit of Dodger Stadium. Oh, so, yep. so sad. So sad. Yeah, I, I also happen to be a big Dodger fan, so yeah, oh. you're... you're yeah, preaching the choir. Why can't they get their uh, ass to get what's going on, right? It's a 76 case. Oh, it's just it's nothing but greed. It's it's so it's so disgusting and so discouraging. Uh, but that that could be a whole other segment <laughs> here. But um thank you gentlemen for for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thank and, you, Daniel. Uh, thank you, Leslie. Thank you both. Thank thanks, you so guys. much. Perry Mason premieres Sunday, June 21st at 9 p.m. on HBO. Number 5. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches are Perry Mason on HBO, 
IFC's Sherman's Showcase, season two of The Politician on Netflix, the returns of Paramount Network's Yellowstone, The Chai on Showtime, Nosferatu on AMC, and Greenleaf begins its final season on OWN. Dan, what you got? That is a wide and varied assortment of television. Uh, I first want to start by mentioning a show that actually premiered on Thursday. It was supposed to premiere on Friday, but uh, Hulu decided not to have programming premiering on Juneteenth. Uh, Taste the Nation with Padma Lachmi is it's really a hoot. Uh, We didn't do a formal review of it, but if you like the persona that Padma Lachmi has kind of developed over the years on Top Chef and on other programming. It is a wonderful showcase for her. It is the latest uh, sort of Anthony Bourdain style, travel the world, travel the country, deal with culture, but mostly about food kind of show. And it's just a lot of fun. She is such a great personality because she can have serious conversations about politics. She can have in-depth conversations about the immigrant experience. And then she can have an episode where she goes around giddily saying wiener over and over again, trying to make people uncomfortable, <laughs> because that is the thing that I think Padma Lachmi might like doing most in the world is trying to make people uncomfortable around her because she's so impressive. Uh, it's it's a really fun show and uh and i endorse it i i really enjoyed the handful of episodes of that that i watched we mentioned sherman showcase earlier and the black history month special in june is very very good people really should check out the first season of this show it's all on hulu and the 44 minute special is just really really timely really really smart uh you know we had all of the democratic politicians wearing kente cloth a couple weeks ago and people made fun of that and there's a wonderful kente cloth uh musical number in this it's basically full of the usual assortment of funny parodies and behind the scenes stuff it is it is really terrific uh one thing that is not terrific is season two of the politician on netflix uh if you watched the first season It wasn't very good either, honestly, but I really liked the finale because the finale introduced characters played by Judith Light and Bette Midler. And it was like, okay, great. If that's what the next season is, it could be a lot of fun. Sadly, the next season is not fun. Uh, Seven episodes. Some of them are under 30 minutes. It has no perspective, no timeliness. It is the rare Ryan Murphy produced show that is entirely foreign to the zeitgeist. There is nothing timely or interesting about this show. It is a dud, and that is even with really perfectly appealing performances by, again, Bette Midler, Judith Light, and a few other members of what is going to, down the road, be looked at as an amazing, totally wasted cast. Uh, Speaking of amazing casts, and in this case, slightly less wasted, Perry Mason has a lot of good things going for it. Uh, you, You just heard the creators talking about how to some degree, there are Trojan horse aspects to the way they're using the brand and what Perry Mason does or doesn't mean to viewers these days. And I think those are questions that will come up as you watch the show. But I've watched eight episodes of it, and Matthew Reese is really good. There is no frame of the show that is not beautifully shot. It is as good looking a show as you will find. And even beyond Matthew Reese, the entire cast is just wonderful. And so, yes, you will spend a fair amount of time watching it, wondering why on earth is this called Perry Mason? But 
I was I was definitely never bored. I was generally entertained. And I, I think that what it sets up for future seasons is potentially a lot more interesting and appealing and opens the door for interesting storytelling. So, you know, you, you have to get over that it's kind of Perry Mason, but kind of not. And then there are things to enjoy about it. So, yeah, that 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 right there is a fair amount of television this week. Some that you should watch, some you definitely shouldn't watch, and some that will keep your attention even if it isn't perfect. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by the showrunners behind TBS turned HBO Max comedy Search Party. Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcast platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to see you guys on uh, Twitter. So come say hi. Give us your feedback. And if you have questions, you can email us at TV's top five at THR dot com. That's TV's top five. The number five at THR dot com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Stay safe, everyone. Everyone.